Maple Street, in the last calm and reflective moment before the monsters came. It's coming from Mars. Mars? They're coming to get you, Barbara. Hey everyone, welcome to Pod Monsters from Mars, the podcast where we break down and discuss our favorite aspects of horror, sci-fi, and pop culture. I'm Bobby, that's Trey. With it. And we're going to be discussing all manner of subgenres, tropes, and archetypes in an effort to figure out what makes them so captivating and what keeps us coming back for more. Um, we are doing a little, something a little different this episode compared to the last. This one we're going to do an interview. Um... In a perfect world, I think our format is going to be alternating a discussion episode between me and Trey with an interview episode where we bring in somebody else somehow uh, and have a relevant discussion to the topic. Um, today's interview is going to be with porn sack Pisha Choate, who wrote Infidel, the comic that we we touched on a little bit mm-hmm. in, our, in our discussion. Yes, um, when we when we decided to start with this topic, I, I immediately thought of him for the interview because he his story infidel kind of embodies a lot of the stuff that you and I had immediately touched on, which was you know apartments instead of haunted houses, mm-hmm. you know people of color, modern issues, and what he came up with was a really modern take on this old genre. So infidel for anyone who's not familiar with it. Um, it was put out by Image Comics in 2018, uh, written by Pornsack Pichichote, um, drawn by Aaron Campbell, and colored by Jose Villarubia. Um, a little bit about Pornsack before we hear from him. He started as an editor at Vertigo Comics. Um, he worked on titles like Sandman, Swamp Thing, Sweet Tooth. A bunch of his books have been nominated for Eisner's. Uh, after that, he went to like DC's TV department and helped develop a lot of their TV shows. Um, he also recently wrote an episode of Two Sentence Horror Stories, which is available on Netflix, and um, a couple of episodes of Light as a Feather, which is available on Hulu. So, yeah, I watched his Two Sentence Horror Stories episode, mm-hmm. and having already spoken to him, I was like, I bet that's Porn Sacks episode, because it felt um, very much like what he describes is his wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. You know, um, like... One thing that I didn't know was that, I guess I should have known it, but I just never put two and two together, was that Asian cultures go deep with ghost stories. Like, that's their main... Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's like one of their main things um, is, like, ghost stories. So, you know, you, you probably... with They're light on other genres, but, like, ghost stories is very much, like, enmeshed in their culture. Mm-hmm. So you have what's essentially, like, an Asian ghost story, and I'm like, I bet that's Porn Sex episode, and it was. And it was also really good. I recommend checking that out. I gotta check that out ASAP when I get home tonight. Um, so, in thinking of interviewing Pornsack, uh, full disclosure was I interviewed him previously for something else, so we had a little bit of a rapport. It was kind of easy to reach out to him, but I luckily had the foresight to catch up with him in person at New York Comic Con a while back, and um, you know we we spoke there. So bear with the recording having a lot of background noise. Um, it's really hard to find a quiet place as impossible in the, in the Jacob Javits Center when there's, <laughs> you know, whatever, 100,000 people or whoever's there. Uh, so we found the quietest place we could, which ended up being in like this sub level in like a loading dock bay where we sat on the floor 
because that's the kind of consummate professional I am. <laughs> uh, we sat on the floor together, and it was it was great. He was really forthcoming, a pleasure to talk to. He had a lot of really smart things to say that you'll hear in a moment. And I just want to thank Hornsack again for being our inaugural interview. Yes, the first interview ever. Uh, anything you want to add, Trey? Um, that I want to read that comic book when you told me about it a couple weeks ago i was like oh, i gotta read this but then i like like i always say i'm, I'm not a big reader oh well it's gonna be a movie <laughs> ah yeah, infidel is in the process of being made into a movie well then it, no i'm not gonna wait to watch it <laughs> i would watch wait to watch the movie but I'm, i don't know when that's coming out <laughs> he said that the there's a director there's a script i don't know that any filming has started so it may be a while maybe a while um, you know i might i might uh i might get catch up with the story in 2026 well, you well I'll read, read the book anyway, tomorrow because one of <laughs> one of his things that he said was uh, the filmmaker may have a totally different take on the story than he did. He was like, I think this was a really interesting take. He's like, this story means certain things to me. Mm-hmm. And to someone else, it should mean something different because we're not the same person. Yes, yeah, arts. Everybody, you know, perceives art differently. Exactly. So feel free to borrow my copy. Nah, I'll borrow your copy when you leave today. And without further ado, here is me and Porn Sack Tisha Choate. Um, talking on the floor at New York Comic Con. Hey everybody, welcome to Pod Monsters from Mars. Uh, I'm here at New York Comic Con, and I'm joined by the phenomenal writer, Pornsack Pichet Chote. How you doing? Good, how are you? Um, I'm doing pretty good. So, we're talking about Haunted Houses, and the reason I'm talking to you about Haunted Houses is because you wrote Infidel, which was a really modern take on Haunted House story. Uh, do you want to just, like, for people who don't know about it, give a quick little recap of it? Yeah, uh, what it's about, it's about a Pakistani-American Muslim woman and her multiracial neighbors who live in an apartment building in New York, and they slowly find out that their uh, building is haunted by creatures that feed off xenophobia. And so, it's also one of the creepiest comics out there, and I don't say that lightly because I find a lot of horror kind of falls short in that regard. It's just, it's tough. It's hard to really pull off. So have you always been a horror fan? Yeah, I have. I mean, actually, that's not true. I, I've been a horror fan for a very long time, but when I was a kid, I was not a horror fan because I would get scared so easily. And so there was a period between when I was a kid, becoming a teenager, where in order to protect myself, I would do the thing where you would just like debunk all the horror as you're watching and be like, oh, that came from this and that came from that and that as a way to kind of like not scare myself. And so that got to a point where as an adult, I got more into horror. It was really hard to scare me because I really needed to just really fall into the narrative and not be trying to, to take it apart from a technical basis because that's what I trained my body to do, to not run away in fear of everything. So uh, so as a result, when I, got, uh, when I was an adult, I got into horror sort of later in life, but then I got into ev- everything. So all the movies, all like the 80s horror movies that I probably should have watched when I was a kid or a teenager, I did not, I caught them more as an adult, like, uh, you know, it, in, in hindsight. So it really gave me the opportunity not just to be into horror, but be interested in like the history of horror as well. And um, in terms of that, what was like the first thing that scared you? Oh, God. Um, the first thing that scared me... The, I, this can't be the first thing that scared me, but the first thing that pops to mind is... What was it called? I think it's one of Brian De Palma's very first movies, like Phantom of the Paradise or something like that, with um, 
It was pretty much, it's very 70s, it was Phantom of the Opera set at like a, cl- a disco club or something like that. And it was super cheesy. It was only as an adult I would realize that Brian De Palma like directed it and therefore it had like some kind of horror credibility. But it didn't take me, like, like my earliest memories are, it did not take me much to scare me, which is why I stood away from it for so long and only got to it as an adult when I was kind of ready to process like being, you know, having to deal with that kind of that kind of stuff. So when you came back to it when you were a little bit older, um, what's like the first thing that really got you where you said, okay, I'm into this now? I probably Juon. Juon, which would become The Grudge. That was the movie where, I mean, part of it was I was working for Karen Berger, uh, who is the head of Vertigo, but she was also the, uh, you know, she's kind of known for bringing the horror renaissance to comics. And the funny thing is, is if you ever talk to Karen, she'll, she'll be the first one to say, like, oh, I'm not a big horror fan. And and she'll kind of laugh at that incongruity. Um, but when I was working with her, you kind of understand why. Is that when you work in genre, it's usually best that if you have a another uh, you know pool of knowledge to draw from to help bolster uh, the genre work. So you know if you're into crime, knowing stuff about police procedure or the history of crime and scams that kind of helps. Science fiction, if you know science, some background science that helps. If you know horror, actually the only thing, the, the body of knowledge that actually helps the most to make good horror is an interest in human psychology and that that which is taboo, which is what Karen was very into. And so working with her, I kind of saw that like, oh, horror is just a way to like explore psychology and that's kind of cool. And then when I saw Juan, that kind of brought it to another level where it's like, oh wow, wait, this is just like surrealism on top of that. And now it's all the things that I love. And, and that really led me to to really sort of embrace horror from there. And so, since we're focusing a lot on like uh, common tropes and subgenres, what would you say are some of your favorite subgenres in horror? Oh God, uh, I mean, uh, clearly The Haunted House is one of my favorites. Um, I'm a sucker for any good twist on a home invasion story. I don't know if I've watched as much as I probably should have. Love a good home invasion story. Demonology stuff, I don't watch as much as I should because that stuff really freaks me out. So I, I can't watch too much of that stuff. Um, uh, what else? I feel I think those are kind of... But, but Honest Haunted House and Ghost Stories, I mean, those are sort of like... I, I go I go to that well sort of so 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 often and and even like sort of like monster monster narratives is, is stuff that I tend to really love too. So one of the things I think that really spoke to me and probably a lot of other people about Infidel was just how modern it is on a very old subgenre. Uh, why did you feel like the haunted house was the right trope to use for this story? You know, that's a really good question. Um, a lot of times with the ideas, they, they all kind of hit at once, so it's a little hard to say what was the chicken and what was the egg for that. Um, the idea, the tropes involved in the haunted house of being of being haunted by things that other people can't see. Uh, the first I saw of that was actually in the Japanese movie Dark Water that got a remake with Jennifer Connelly, and that was very much about it was a it was a period piece, but like only ten years after the movie, ten years before the movie came out, about a single woman trying to raise a kid, and at a, at a time in a chauvinistic Japan where they didn't think a single woman could raise a child, and then she was haunted on top of that uh, by the, by the ghost in this building, and I loved how it was it had those tropes and was using it to deal with sort of like you know issues of feminism and chauvinism and, and the like and misogyny and the like 
And so, so that was kind of my first inspiration. And it probably became like my first introduction to the idea that you could use the ghost story to tell a story that involved privilege and gaslighting and, and all these things. So that's where that the particular tropes made sense. But then I think also too, there was very much a desire for me of as a fan of horror, you know, when I came up with the idea of of Infidel, and this, and this, we're slowly moving out of that phase now. But like for a while, we were in the remake and redo and relaunch and reboot phase of horror. Specifically, I mean, we're kind of at that in everything else now. But like horror was like we got kind of, horror kind of got there first. And the thing I didn't like about that was what I loved about horror was it was a way to examine what was taboo and what was making people uncomfortable. And in the horror of the '70s and even in the '80s, you know that that was very much a thing. And the reboots and remakes were just ways of looking at the old ways we got scared, where it occurred to me there were so many things to get to be scared of now. And so there was a separate idea of, hey, I want to make a really modern horror story at the same time with this idea of like, wow, the tropes of a haunted house fit with these themes of xenophobia and gaslighting and privilege so well. And so all those things, it's a little hard for me anyway to talk about which came first, the chicken or the egg, but they all were kind of happening at the same time and they all kind of coalesced to, to influence Infidel quite a bit. Yeah, it's funny you say that because when I thought up that question, I started thinking, well, what else could it have been? Like, I started running my brain through, like, other subgenres, and yeah. I was like, I couldn't see this as a slasher right. or, I don't know, I'm blanking on other subgenres, <laughs> yeah. but obviously there's a lot of them. So when you were, um, when you were developing the idea, uh, were there any, like, primary considerations, like, at the forefront of your mind that you knew you either wanted to do or not do with this story? Oh, jeez. Um, I mean, honestly, the, 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 the big thing that was the most important thing to me was just being honest to the experience. You know, one of the things, again, part to make it a modern story, and part of making a modern story was wanting to make a story that my friends would want to read. And I, I'm part of this, I've talked about this before, I'm part of this text chain that's still going right now. I have to silence it because it blows, I'll wake up and there's 57 texts on, especially in, on, in, during New York Comic Con. And it's always about geek shit, about video games or sneakers or movies, this trailer dropping, whatever the case may be. And it's all from a wide range. Like there's a couple Asian people on there, a couple black people on there, a white person on there, like a very diverse sort of group of people that are on there. And, um, and they love this stuff so much. And, and the other thing about them is their particular background really informed their perspective on the media they were consuming. And I never seen that in, forget a haunted house story or a horror story, but like, I, don't, I don't feel like I was seeing that in fiction in, in general. Norm, uh, typically I saw that if people were going to talk about, you know, quote unquote diverse experiences, it would be... You know, you have a cast that was all the colors of the rainbow, but they all kind of had the same generic background, which was like some version of white, like, like a tote, very CW, United States of Benetton kind of like perspective on things. Or there was African-American literature or Asian-American film, and it was only about that experience. And again, I was looking for a story that reflected more of my friends, which acknowledged all those perspectives and had all those ex perspectives influence the terms of the story, but didn't... But, uh, but coexisted with itself and, and wasn't just about one group at the exclusion of other groups and because that was the people that I hung out with. So for me, a lot of it was trying to tell that story 
with the you know with those particular people. So for me, in terms of what I wanted to do and what I didn't want to do, what I wanted to do more than anything else, and what I didn't want to do, is I wanted the experience to ring true to all the different perspectives, and that was really hard. And that was took a lot of research. It taught a lot. It took a lot of talking to people. It took a lot of getting feedback from other people to kind of get that right. I think it was more wanting to do that, and there was less, you know, things I didn't want to do as much as I wanted to do that right. Uh, in terms of what I didn't want to do, we didn't want, even though it was a horror story where there, our protagonist and that meant the main victim was Muslim, we didn't want imagery of like violence to Muslims on the cover because we felt there was too much of that out in the world. So that might be the only thing that we said, like, let's not do that. But at the same time, though, from Aaron, who did all our covers, to all the variant artists, no one actually went there anyway. So it wasn't a, a conversation we actually had to have and tell them not to do. No one wanted to go there. So, so. so when we were having our discussion about haunted houses, my co-host Trey and I, uh, one of the things that we came up with was, it seems like haunted houses, they're always these big, grand Victorian manners or whatever. And I was like, well, I think it's going to be more likely that you're going to have a haunted apartment, right? <laughs> and so you did that, and I just wanted to say thanks, because I find that much more relatable. Yeah. Um, there's not a question there. Was there anything you want to say about <laughs> well, well, I mean, that was a, I mean, that was a, a, a conscious decision, because you're exactly right. Like, we looked at the, I looked at the genre and was like, yeah, it's a lot of houses in the middle of nowhere kind of thing, and I get it. But, like, what's the modern version of that? And also, like, I live in New York. I have a hard time believing, you know, there aren't ghosts in anything. Like, so, one of my good friends, when I first moved to New York, she lived in a apartment on Soho. I think I, I talked about this like uh, two years ago at New York Comic Con because I was surrounded by New Yorkers who would get it. Um, she lived in an apartment in Soho that she paid $500 a month for. Yeah. And But the catch was, it was, originally she moved in because the man living there, it was a rent-controlled apartment, and he was in the hospital and he was like terminal. And his family wanted to keep the apartment and didn't want to leave it because, because he was only paying $500. And the building knew they could like, you know, quadruple that price. So she was supposed to live there while he was in while he was in the hospital. Then he passed away. And then the, the her friends who had to live there said, listen, you're totally allowed to stay there. You can stay there for as long as you want, but we don't want to lose the apartment. So you have to keep all his stuff up. So all of his pictures and everything was still in the apartment. She had to see that every day. This man that she knew used to live in her apartment and passed away. And that, to me, felt like a haunted apartment because I used to go there all the time. And it was such a weird thing to have a picture of this old man I didn't know who I knew was dead. Was, you know, looking at me through all this sort of stuff. and But she stayed there because it was $500 for an apartment in Soho. Why wouldn't you? Um, and so that was kind of my first idea. I was like, oh, yeah, no, no. I can, I can, not only could I see there being a haunted apartment, I could totally see why you would live in a haunted apartment for like 10 years because the rent was so cheap. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. We actually discussed that, too. We discussed, like, the economy, yeah, where yeah. it's like, I, all my wealth is wrapped up in this house. I can't move, yeah. you know? Um, so while I was researching for our episode, I was surprised to learn that as a genre, this goes back like 2,000 years almost. And um, did you, when you were sort of planning this out, did you kind of like feel the heft of all that history? The heft is the, is the wrong word for it. I definitely felt the tradition. Uh, you know, I'm, it's funny because like I'll have all these like pseudo-intellectual reasons of like why I chose a haunted house story, but I'll tell a friend that I my first comment is a haunted house story, and the first thing that he said was, "Oh, you're so fucking Thai." So because it, in Asian culture and Thai culture, a haunted house 
ghost stories go back for so long. And it is partly of this idea that you just don't want to admit your loved ones have gone. But but more than that, like I'm the, growing up, I grew up for five years in Thailand. I was the only one of my friends who did not have a story involving a ghost. Everyone I knew had a story about how they saw a ghost, how they interacted with a ghost, how there's a ghost in this picture that they took. Everyone had those stories. It's very much sort of a common belief. So I think in that tradition, it's it's less a genre of storytelling. It's just a belief that is sort of carried on, which is one of the you know one of the things I love when I discovered Asian horror was this idea of like Western horror spends so much energy explaining where the mystical comes from, where Eastern horror just takes it for granted and you kind of run run from there. And I found that approach I found that approach scarier and definitely sort of more interesting to me. Yeah, I agree. Sometimes the explanation ruins everything. Yeah, exactly. I, I think Sam Raimi said this in the commentary of The Grudge of there's something about do, when you're doing a horror narrative, you want to keep it super simple so that the only thing the brain has to do to be scared is be scared. And sometimes when you throw too much mythology in there, your brain spends so much time pondering over, turning over that mythology, it's energy it could be using to be being scared. It, it removes you from that experience a little bit because you're spending so long thinking about it. And so I do think if you have too much mythology, you fall kind of into that, into that trap. So it seems like with uh, comment, uh, comics and projects like this and stuff, there's like two camps when it comes to preparation. One is to dive into the genre, consume as much of it as you can and kind of like internalize it. And the other is to entirely avoid it so that nobody else's ideas affect your own. Where did you land on that? I, I, am, def I am always a dive headfirst into the material. I am a research nut. I love Research is probably the, my favorite part of the job. I love having a list of 12 movies. Yeah, I love having a list of 12 movies. And then be like, I'm working. I have to watch all of these. Like, that's great. And so much so that it is a fine line when research turns into procrastination. And I feel like I cross it often. Um, but I love, and, and I also believe, too, like, the, the whole the whole thing of I don't want to get influenced by other ideas. I'm not big on that as a philosophy. Uh, I've always kind of believed that any stance that you take that relies upon ignorance can't be that strong a position. So, and I'm also believe the belief of if you don't want to get too influenced by certain work, then just throw in a whole lot of other work and it'll get all get bunched into that. But like the idea of like not reading that because I don't want to get influenced. I mean, that to me is just like an excuse for ignorance, and I've never been cut. I've never subscribed to that that personal belief. And so then what kind of stuff did you turn to for research? God, uh, I looked at all my favorite horror movies that got me, a lot of which were ghost stories. Uh, the Shining being one of them. Um, um, oh my, The Descent, which is not a ghost story, but still, you know, wonderfully evocative. Juan, uh, like I said, Dark Water had a big influence on this. 28 Days Later, 28 Weeks Later was really interesting to watch. Those are like all the horror movies, horror comics. I looked at a lot of a lot of Junji Ito, uh, Alan Morse, and Steve Bissett's Swamp Thing, John, uh, Delan Jamie Delano, John Ridgway's early Hellblazer, you know, random horror manga that people would recommend to me. And again, I would just, you know, all of that. I read a lot of horror comics to sort of see what worked and what didn't, but I read a lot of horror comics. And if you read horror comics, you'll know that a lot of them just aren't that scary. So I read a lot of them to try to figure out like what's the ones that got me and try to take as many of those lessons as I can, internalize those lessons, and then sort of apply them. And so you mentioned taboos earlier, and I have written here the same thing, like good, good horror pushes you into the taboos yeah. until you're uncomfortable. So how did you approach that in yours? I mean, it, it, it's funny because 
the taboo, what happened with Infidel was that that issue with tab that the, the thing that was taboo turned out not taboo, and it turned out the thing we desperately need to talk about, which is there is a discomfort talking about race and privilege and 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 that the in xenophobia and the spectrum of race and xenophobia and privilege that happens, and you know. Originally, when I came up with the idea of the story, which was ages ago, uh, um, it was, I think I came up with the, the germ of the idea happened a year after Obama took office, just for an idea of how, how long ago that was. And it was because we had, we had elected a African-American president, and so we as a country believed we had licked racism, but meanwhile, xenophobia was on the rant and rise, rampant rise. And the idea of telling a story that linked this rampant rise of xenophobia with this conversation about race that we weren't having was very interesting to me, and I wanted to link that. And, and to me, that was a taboo thing. That was a thing that we didn't talk about in public because we were so scared about getting it wrong. Because this idea, and it's still kind of there, this idea like if we say the wrong thing about race, we will be instantly branded as racist and, and that is a scarlet letter that will never be erased. And so we therefore we don't talk about it at all. And the conversation makes us too uncomfortable. So in a way that was quiet, you know, when I was coming up with the idea that was quietly taboo. And then as the story gestated, this thing that became taboo, our culture got to the point where we realized this is something we desperately needed to talk about. And so that was a thing that I ended up, you know, that shift was one of the reasons why I wanted to make the comic. Um, but at the same time, though, there was so much tension around that conversation that even though it wasn't technically taboo, um, it had all of the properties something taboo has, which allowed the horror to feed off of it. You have race as an issue that you just mentioned, but like, why also throw in Islamophobia? You know, I wanted to talk about because to me, it's all it's all tied into one another. It, it's all xenoph it's all xenophobia, and so it's all tied. It's fear of the other, and it's all tied into one another. And so, what I and if I wanted to talk about it, I wanted to talk. I felt like the story worked best if it approached the person which sort of like the least privilege. And so, a Pakistani. American Muslim woman who who was practicing, who still wore a veil uh, to when she worshipped. Um, that to me seemed like a place to start that start that conversation, um, and that's and that's why I, I started there. And around the time the comic came out, it was especially relevant because the travel ban was happening and stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's still very, it's still very relevant, sadly. Um, you know, and it's still very relevant in the sense that, you know, immigration is becoming a, a, a more and more divisive issue, and it looks like it's going to become a campaign issue uh, for the current president. So, you know, it's it, it, it's some. The thing about xenophobia and immigration is that it's. It is such a part of the American DNA, to the point now of having lived in this material for a while, and for my next book, I'll, I'm living in it as well. I'd argue that these issues of xenophobia and what makes someone American and is someone American enough, that's almost at the core of the American identity. It gets to be that there is a case that you can't talk about America and American identity without talking about those issues. So you were talking earlier about diversity being one of the core things that you had from the start that you wanted to do, and that's obviously apparent because you included your original pitch letter in the back of the paperback. Did you worry about, um, you mentioned how easy it is to do it wrong. Yeah. Um, how did you 
how did you kind of navigate not doing it wrong? I mean, listen, I, it's funny. I, I did an interview recently. I'm still not convinced I didn't. Like, I still think eventually someone's going to read, like, 300 people are going to read the book and realize, oh, my God, this is horrible, and I did it all wrong. Like, I'm constantly worrying about that. Like, if the movie ever gets made and there are new people who are brought to the book, I think those new people will see I did everything wrong. Like, I still have those very palpable concerns, and I don't know if they'll ever go away. So all I can say is I tried to do the best that I could, and that was from doing a lot of reading, a lot of reading the books, a lot of reading the articles. I, I made a lot of new friends. I talked to a lot of people. I tried to get every pers every perspective that's in the book. I tried really hard to talk some talk to someone so I could hear where that perspective was coming from. Um, I like to think that everything in the book is a reflection of things I've heard uh, people say, and it was and it, the, the the project was very much about listening and talking to people and not necessarily taking their answers and putting them into the, the mouths of characters, but to, to construct the, the philosophy and the ideology behind those answers and have my characters imbue the, that ideology and philosophy. But it's something I'm constantly worried about that I did wrong. Like, I don't know if I did it right. Um, and and I, I feel like I'm constantly waiting for that other shoe to drop to tell me I did it all wrong. And I'm and constantly grateful that one, that it hasn't happened, and two, when people tell me that it feels authentic, especially with people who personally relate to, to any of the characters in the book. And also, like, you exhibit a lot of, like, the gray areas of those issues. Um, actually, almost entirely, it's the gray areas that you're showing. Uh, you have a character in there who's, like, upset that she lost out on a job because there were too many white people um, in the in the play that she was auditioning for. This one I found interesting. You have two guys discussing whether or not it's racist to not be attracted yeah. to a certain race. And to me, I read it as you kind of asking those questions and, like, just wondering out loud. But did you, were you concerned with like presenting that kind of devil's advocate side that it could be misconstrued? I, yeah, I mean, like I said, there, were, there wasn't any aspect, and, and so much so that it is a, as I work on other things, it is educational to me that every issue, there was anxiety with every issue that came out about choices that were made, if they were the right choices. I worried, was I too progressive on some things? I was worried about if I was, wasn't progressive enough on certain topics. And, and I didn't know. I honestly didn't know. And so the only thing I could hang my head on at the end of the day was if it felt honest, if it felt true. Um, did I know people who were going through it? Was it, a, was, it, was it coming from an honest place? You know, and that's one of the reasons why I loved having Jose there as an editor in that particular sequence about, uh, I think, in the original after that, Jose had to know that it felt more like some guy who didn't get the girl and like you know had a problem with that. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's a good, that's good to know. So then we we shifted that conversation to make it more of what I intended to be, which is I think what's on the page now, which is meant to be sort of a question. One of the things that was very much about the book that the book was about was we know we we have clearly been taught now that racism is wrong and on the the, the poles of racism, anything on the extreme end, we we acknowledge that that is bad but there are but it's such a sliding scale there's so many shades of gray that we don't really agree on what racism is once you hit that absolute black and the conversation I wanted to have is I wanted characters that clearly knew racism was wrong clearly knew racism was a force that was hurting them and hurting the people that they love but couldn't necessarily agree on what it was 
and didn't really know how to define it. And that was some, that was, if anything in the book, that was the heart of the book to me about people knowing something, this thing is wrong, not knowing how to define it, and as a result, not knowing what to do. And that, that helplessness that comes from that. Um, that's, that, that spirit was very much what the book was about. Have you had anybody approach you um, who interpreted it the wrong way and you were like, oh, that wasn't my point? You know what's interesting is that I, I've had people, and that's the thing about like reading, uh, you know, the, the, the reader response relationship. Anyway, I've had people who who had responses like I'm really glad the book did this I'm like oh it did it like I don't know do I feel comfortable about that like I, I, I don't know you know I think one of the things that I did not realize while I was writing it and I'm kind of grateful looking back and, and I know this more through uh, people's response is that it's a book about xenophobia that also is very inclusive at the same time and I think people responded to how inclusive the story was while still being about things that divided people and, and, and excluded people. Uh, and there are times I, I wonder, it's like, ooh, should it have been as inclusive as it was given that it's about issues like xenophobia and racism and all that sort of stuff. And I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is to that. Um, but at the same time, though, I'm grateful that people are engaging with the material. When someone says, oh, I'm grateful, you know, that, that you know, you took account for this, sometimes my response is, oh, you know, should you be grateful? Like, was my responsibility more to disturb you than to make you, than to please you? And, like, and, I, and, I, and I don't know. I don't know. With issue stories like this, uh, Get Out obviously yeah. cleared the way for a lot of things like this. Do you think you could have done this book 10 years ago? Or like, what do you think the reaction would have been had you done it? That's a really good question. I, I, the short answer is I don't know what the reaction would have been. I, like I said, I had, this, I had this idea about 10 years ago to do and I desperately wanted to do it. Where we are now in a society and the existence of Get Out definitely allowed me to perhapsly push the narrative a little more to talk about these things. If I had done it in a pre-Get Out world, I might have not been able to talk as far because I might have needed to hold the reader's hand a little bit more. Um, you know, it, 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 it's funny, like, there's definitely a way of saying this is the right book at the right time. On the other hand, there, there's the aspect of me saying, well, I also tried to listen to the world to inform everything that was happening to inform the narrative. But it was a case of, even when I was writing, like, I felt like as the book was coming out, you know, words like privilege and gaslighting became part of the popular lexicon, where I felt like before 2018, I mean, sure, those words were around, but they weren't common, you know, words as they are now. So much so that, like, I didn't start using the word gaslighting to talk about some of the things that were happening until after the book had come out because I'd seen so many other people use, use that word. It was it was just, I wasn't used to that word being used in popular vocabulary. So um, I don't know what would happen if it got out 10 years ago. The thing that Get Out definitely helped to do was it made it a lot easier to pitch. And especially in the research phase, and you're talking to people and you want to ask them about their religion and their, their perspective on the world. And especially, you know, when I was talking to people, it was not the best time to be a Muslim person you know, giving your perspectives on the world and all that. So there was a lot of hesitancy. And so for me to have to go like, yeah, but it's for a book. Well, it's for a comic. Well, it's a horror comic. And you know, like, and like, there's all these ways that where people are just like, look at you like, what? And, and after Get Out, it got a little bit easier to say like, oh, it's like a comic book version of Get Out. And then they realized like, okay, there was like what uh, Aaron Campbell, the artist on the book called a proof of uh, cons uh, proof of genre. That book proved that like, oh, you can talk about these issues within a genre, within the genre of horror. And, and it avoided, um, it, it made the audience more receptive to that idea. 
Yeah, especially because horror is a genre that is often like not taken seriously, so people could think you're making light of things exactly. that are serious. Exactly. Horror is one of those genres where it's perfectly all right not to have a happy ending. You know, it's one of those genres where I, a lot of the shit, the moves that I made, uh, you know, spoilers like changing protagonists halfway through, it dates back to Psycho. Like you, like it's part of the DNA in the genre, in which it, it in, in that would have been less the case for another genre, even down to back to the roots, back to the 70s roots, of using that hard to talk about issues, um, that's all part of the DNA of the genre. So partly, so there were so many reasons, if you're a student and a lover of the genre, to realize why horror is the perfect vehicle for it. But if you're not uh, up on all that stuff, it's very easy to say that you're belittling it. I mean, there's also a very large tradition in horror in doing, doing exploitation. And it was, with, before Get Out, it was very easy. I think the thing everyone, the shorthand everyone probably had to something like this would be the exploitational version of it. So I want to shift a little bit to the role that Faith plays in the story. And obviously, um, in a lot of these stories, it's a different faith. It's like faith in ghosts or the afterlife or demons, faith in yourself that you're not crazy, faith in the situation, because you have to understand what's happening in order to fight it. But here, there's also the added level of her literal faith. So uh, tell me a little bit about that. I went to high school in Thailand, and it was, uh, I spent there, I was there for five years, and it was a Seventh-day Adventist high school. So I had five years of Bible study under my belt. I know a lot about it. Uh, I've read the Bible a lot. I'm not Christian. I don't consider myself Christian. But I, I, I believe it's agnostic when you don't believe in religion, but you believe in God. And, I, and, and I'm certainly agnostic. Um, and, you know, I spent a lot of time at Vertigo, too, where Vertigo was not necessarily a champion of religious faith. And, um, but I always had a certain admiration for people of faith at a time where cynicism is, is high, the strength it took, it takes to be faithful, to, to, to hold on to your faith. And so I had always wanted something that kind of, I wanted a story from that perspective. I, I liked the idea, it, this was not my intention for Infidel. It became a happy opportunity, but it became an opportunity to tell a story that I always wanted to see about someone with faith and sort of the strength that faith gives you. And I was surprised by how much the story accessed my desire. I had always wanted to see a page about in comics about someone praying. And so it, this book gave me the chance to do that. And those were surprises I made along the way. I didn't, I don't think I, re- I knew because it's, I mean, called book infidel and all that, but I didn't realize how much it would scratch of wanting to itch of wanting to see people of faith in, in comics. And then I also just mentioned like faith in yourself that you're not crazy, which is something that Aisha yeah. kind of struggles with at the beginning. Uh, tell me about navigating that. I mean, it, it's funny. Um, a lot of that, I, I remember especially when the book came out, uh, so much, so many people, reviewers latched onto that as sort of a, a either a plot point or a, a commentary that the that the story wanted to make. But it, it came from a very organic place in the sense of. I just feel like if you're sane and all of this insanity is happening around you, the only logical response is to worry about your sanity. And it, for me, it was really as straightforward as that, is that she's the most level-headed person in the world. If all this stuff is happening, the first thing, of course, she would worry about is her own sanity. Oh, I absolutely agree. Um, you'd have to be crazy not to yeah. first question your sanity. Yeah, yeah. So we also previously mentioned race, racism, rather, and how you illustrated it. And so it's really easy to kind of sort of paint with a broad brush in that regard. Um, and I, I mean, 
maybe I touched on this a little earlier, but uh, why did you make the decision to focus solely on those gray areas, like the woman clutching her purse? Um, it, you know what? It was just... Small, small. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think for me, the there was a version of this story that took place in, like, Alabama that I did not want to tell. You know, to me, what was more interesting, because... I, it was more pertinent to my everyday life. As, as someone who lives in New York for most of his life, um, and now I live in LA, like I've always lived in these blue states, progressive communities. Um, there's a ton of racism there. And and it was more interesting to me to see the how racism and those gray zones of racism and xenophobia in progressive communities as opposed to, uh, you know, in more conservative communities where it would be easier to lampoon or make, or make cartoonish. Uh, I was, and again, I think this is a little bit of a fact. I've always lived, I, you know, Boston, New York, LA, I've always lived in, you know, states that lean left, but yet this stuff is very much on my mind and, and it's stuff I feel like I interact with rather regularly. And so I think there was a temptation to, because it is easy to draw sides on this, it is easy to say this is the racist side and that is the non-racist side, but it is a spectrum that exists in all of it. And I think there was so much in pop culture certainly talking about like, you know, all the the monstrous intolerance that's happening on the conservative side of the spectrum that I very much wanted to talk about the intolerance that was happening, the intolerance and ignorance that was happening on the more progressive side of the spectrum. So another thing that we ended up talking a lot about in our episode was mental health and how it factors in here. I was honestly surprised that that was uh, a theme that I found. I figured, oh, I'll find some family dynamic stuff or whatever. But I was really surprised that like we ended up leaning so heavily on our discussion with like depression and anxiety. Why do you think those uh, themes kind of factor so well into these kinds of stories? I mean, I, I do think it is, you know when I do think it's the only sane response to an insane, if the world is going insane. And then because of that, it ends up being a mirror of, you know, you end up measuring yourself to that yardstick of, am I sane enough? You know, am I normal enough? Am I regular enough? And, and that discussion rarely leads anywhere good. Being in a situation where you're having to doubt and question your sanity gets you into the conversation of what is quote unquote normal, what is quote unquote sane, where do we, what is the acceptable spectrum close by, close by to it. So it very quickly, it very organically leads to that discussion. I mean, it, that was definitely the case for, my, for, for Infidel. And, and, and I'll be honest, to the point of, you know, it was, I think it was, I don't know how conscious it was, but it was there for a minute of like, I didn't want to linger too long with that because it wasn't what the book was about. And also I thought other stories had done it better. And so I, I so for me, even when we dealt with in the book, I want to deal with it for the respective amount that made sense for that material and then not have to go too much farther and then and then talk about the other things. Yeah, I found that um, I was reading The Haunting of Hill House mm, and yeah, I was yeah. like, oh, this woman is very anxious. Like, yeah. there's a lot of anxiety in this. Yeah, yeah. And, that's, and that's, you know, that's a great thing, too. The great thing about The Haunting of Hill House, too, is when you're talking specifically about family hauntings, too, I think mental health is such, you know, I, I did a pilot about uh, about a family haunting and mental health is quick, uh, is very much what that is about because I think it allows you to scratch this other thing too is that when you start with the, when you start with using the tropes of family haunting, it ends up talking about like how much of mental health is hereditary and, and there's a considerable, I, I have it certainly, there's a considerable dis-ease that happens with um, the, 
with the possibility that you can inherit bad mental health from the people that you love. So I wanted to also talk about some of like the philosophy behind the book and you've got these uh, monsters, these ghosts that are first of all drawn really well like the way they're twisted up and stuff I found that so cool um, but you also have this notion that it's negative emotions in the real world yeah. that kind of feed them. Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Well I mean a lot of that was I would sort of say nothing of that is technically new. That if you look at the tradition of, of ghost stories, and from all different types of faiths, you go, yeah, Ghostbusters too, yes. <laughs> um, it is this idea that there something happens in the physical world, it is unresolved, those emotions still linger, and, and that's pretty much the genesis for every ghost, ghost story. The mechanics are certainly different. And for certain like mythologies, they'll bring demonology into into and all that. But for for us, even though we have a bunch of strict rules on like how all that stuff works, um, we kind of wanted to leave a lot of it open to the reader, primarily because we didn't want to get into nuts and bolts of, of of how it worked. The only thing that was important is that you know that it was it was there, and because we were pulling out from a, a large tradition of it being there, you know, we threw out a whole bunch of reasons like, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this, and all of this, you know, is a belief. Different people have these beliefs, but it was more just about the idea that it is, you know, the... That stuff has always been in the tradition of ghost stories, and so we were just—it was less having it, more of an intent of being about that, more just leaning on like this is kind of what we're accepted about ghost stories. Anyway, I think if we—if the book has any innovation in the in that particular tradition of ghost and horror storytelling, it's the innovation might be, and I say might because I'm sure other people have done it, is this idea that as opposed to hate in general, we make it a little bit more specific. You know, um, but there are certainly ghost stories where the ghost only hates a particular person who, you know, only hates redheads or only, you know, or only hate, there are ghost stories where they hate a son because it reminds them too much of the son that, you know, of, uh, that that killed them and all that. So the idea that ghosts can target people for by mistakes or for wrong reasons that that is that isn't even new. It was just taking sort of the contemporary relevance of the issue of racism and juxtaposing that on the shape of a of a ghost story. I mean that is the the arguably the only innovation we really made on on, on the on the subgenre. It also seems like most ghost stories, haunted house stories, tend to be, for lack of a better word, like pessimistic. Um, Poltergeist is kind of yeah. not. It's kind of. I think it's kind of optimistic. Yeah. But uh, you sort of straddle the fence here. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, it was a big. So much of the book was me wrestling with my own feelings about the world. Of you know, of there. Are, you hear horrible things every day. But meanwhile, you also hear things that kind of inspire. You hear about people coming together for no other reason than because they think something is wrong which is beautiful and moving so a lot of it is like me just being bipolar and straddling like is the world a great place is the world a horrible place is the world a great place is the world a horrible place ultimately I feel like for the end of the book what ended up winning out was uh, responsibility might be too hard a word to put on it but like this idea that I was writing a book about the you know aspects of the Muslim experience and to end that book in a grim way that said with all this stuff the only outcome is death felt wrong and it one it didn't feel true it, I didn't believe it and it, it it felt distasteful and so there was as I was struggling back and forth on terms of like 
is this a pessimistic book? Is this an optimistic book? And all that. That 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 was probably the only bit of it that kind of influenced me in, in sort of saying like. If you if this book was to end with death to everyone and all that sort of stuff, are you comfortable with that and do you believe that? And the answer for both those questions end up being no, and so and that's why the book ends ends in the fashion that it ends. All right. So do you want to tell people where they can find you? Yeah, I am at real underscore pornsack at uh, at uh, Twitter, and I think it's real underscore psack at Instagram because I found out Instagram will not let you have any bits of the syllable porn in your Instagram handle. I found that out after many tries and many iterations of my name, but those are the two places where you can find me. Cool. Well, I just wanted to thank you again for being the first interview on our show oh, thank you. and uh, taking the time to sit on the floor with me in the, <laughs> in the middle of the Jacob Javits Center. Um, so there you go. That was Porn Stack Picture Show. Check out his shows on Netflix and Hulu. See you later.